Hey, I'm Jesse. In our devotion series right now in Nehemiah, we're in chapter three. Now this is one of those list of names type passages, but it comes with an added bonus of not only the names of certain families or people groups or uh, just coalitions who were employed by somebody, but it also comes with what they did to help rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So I don't want you to skip it because along the way, there are these treasures to be found. And when we zoom out collectively and look at the bigger message of chapter three, it tells us something pretty profound and even has some implications for how you might view the role of governance, uh, the role of the church, separation of church and state. Here's chapter three, verse 15. Shalom, son of Kol Jose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt and roofed it. It's pretty generous. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made the repairs to the wall, the pool of Shelah, near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. It's kind of cool because you're starting to see some names of places that will come up in the New Testament, like the man born blind, who's healed miraculously by Jesus in John chapter nine. The wall just reached that pool. It means sent. Here's verse 16. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kaliah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Benuai, son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kalah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. It's so cool because you're seeing these glimpses of the glory of Israel past as they name pieces of it. And you're also seeing these foreshadowings of the glory future to take place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was built under Solomon's instructions and it was glorious. And then they're overthrown by the Assyrians. They're cast out by the Babylonians. Everything's left in shambles. See as the second Kings chapter 25, where, I mean, it's just burned down. The wall's destroyed. Fast forward 50 years. That's where the book of Nehemiah is taking place. Nehemiah is one with the book of Ezra. So you've got these guys like King Cyrus of Persia allows uh, Zerubbabel to go and rebuild the temple. And then you've got Ezra who goes and kind of reestablishes community based around the reading of the Torah, the word of God. And now Nehemiah is picking up and taking over the, the, the repair of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And Ezra and Nehemiah do this with the blessing and even resources from King Artaxerxes of Persia. But along the way, you're getting these glimpses of the past and glories of the future. These glimpses of how awesome it was before. I mean, David just got named, right? The, uh, the city of David, the stairs that descend from the city of David, that's verse 15. We're at that portion of the wall now that it just got put back together again. It's been in shambles, but now it's back up and it's put back together again. And there's, there's a history there that's deeply meaningful, especially to the, to the Jewish people that their king, their beloved king, the one whose throne would never end, that's David. We've just rebuilt the wall around it because for a long time, for about half a century now, it's looked like that was bleak. I thought God was gonna do something awesome and now it's just kind of been in ruins. And now the wall next to it has been rebuilt and it's looking more like it used to. It doesn't quite reach the same glory it had before. We'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Ezra. But 
we're starting to see God's promises come back together again. This is no small construction project. And you had some pretty, you had some pretty significant contributions from King Artaxerxes of Persia. But these guys are working at their own expense. Not everybody's doing it perfectly, stay tuned. The book of Nehemiah has a bit of an anticlimactic ending. You're gonna see that not everybody was really doing all that they could. Haggai is gonna weigh in and say like, hey, you guys were rebuilding your personal homes first and then coming to help, by the way, with the temple and with the wall. He kind of calls out some of their hypocrisy. So it's not a perfect story, but no church is perfect, right? No story is perfect. But in this, wow, they were able to, with incredible efficiency, accomplish and build something that would take even like a modern American municipality 10 to 15 years to sort out and fund and actually execute. And they did it really well. I mean, wow. They did it in such a way that it would last all the way until the year 70, when the Roman Empire, which did not exist yet in the form that we remember it, it would, it would last until the year 70 AD, for crying out loud. These guys, just on a volunteer basis, just all rallying and recruiting and giving of their own time and resources, they built something tremendous. They did something absolutely awesome. You know, I feel like churches that build buildings kind of prove the voluntarism that, uh, I hate borrowing a term that was kind of used by atheistic author Ayn Rand. She was actually pretty accurate in some of her fiscal theory. Uh, but they prove it true that without, without the government, you know, meddling in things that people can come together and volunteer their time, volunteer their resources, and they can accomplish something that's far faster and greater and more efficient in scale than something that is, something that is, uh, meddled in by the government owned publicly. I can think of no more clear example in our modern estimation than SpaceX versus NASA. That when it's private and it's done, and it's done by, by willing participants, not, not people who are forced to give under compulsion by threat of duress from a governmental body that says, give to this charitable cause or else. <laughs> These people are giving because they believe in the mission and they're working because they believe in the vision of it. And that's beautiful. And they're able to accomplish something really tremendous. I mean, like, I know that we're just reading names and portions of walls, but do you realize that if I were to go to the city of Renton with a proposal, anything like this, that it'd be probably half a century before anything remotely close to this actually came to, came to pass. But this is thousands of years ago, and these are Old Testament people who don't have near the kind of resources that we do, and yet they all, through voluntary contributions, were able to accomplish something that is grand and incredible. Members of the Redemption Church, we're gonna ask you to volunteer your own time and effort and energy. We're gonna be able to accomplish something that is beyond anything that a city or municipality could have built through tax dollars. We're gonna do something that's more beautiful. We're gonna accomplish something that's gonna be of greater benefit to the community. We're gonna be able to design something with the community needs in mind that's gonna be absolutely incredible and we're gonna do it more efficiently. This is an ancient, ancient tradition of the people of God. Okay, libertarians, you guys are cool, but you didn't invent this. It's actually way, way older than uh, Milton Friedman. <laughs> it goes all the way back, all the way back to, to the Old Testament. It's almost like the word of God is inspired or something, right? So let's enact this beautiful tradition of voluntarily contributing of our resources and our efforts to build something that is incredible and built efficiently and built beautifully and built faster than any kind of public entity ever could. Let's do this.